When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Harvey, we thought we were free for the day. We actually tried to post this episode of the VanCast already. However, as Jeff Demet, our esteemed producer, hit posts, I think that's the button he hits, the one that says post, uh, Luke Shen got traded to the Leafs. So we're going to start there, and then we will get back into what we had previously recorded, which didn't talk about Luke Shen, but everything else that's going on with the Canucks. But let's, let's start there. This is kind of where we thought this was all headed back to, because, you know, Luke Shen has missed four games. We go back to the beginning of last week. He makes the trip to Nashville, gets on a plane, comes back to Vancouver, misses those two games, misses the Boston game, practices with the team, and then misses the game in Dallas. So we weren't sure where it was going. Drancer talked about the possibility of maybe they're trying to get creative here. This isn't simply going to be Shen for a draft pick. They might try to use this to work through a bigger deal. It didn't happen that way. It became Shen for a third. And, you know, we we thought last week that the market was hot for Luke Shen. They might be able to get a second, but in the end, it did cool a bit because it took this long. And should I be saying they settled for a third or is that right, given the current state of the market? It's, you know, at this stage, it wouldn't be settling. I, I don't think. I, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is a third round pick, a little bit below what we were hoping for. Yes, we were, I think, all hoping for a second round pick, but you could see the way the market was developing, evolving, where a lot of defensemen who we didn't expect to hit the market ended up hitting the market in terms of first it was Dmitry Orlov and that took the Bruins out of the market. Then we're hearing names like Nick Jensen as well with Washington out of it, another pending UFA, a right shot defenseman, Matthias Ekholm over in Nashville, another defenseman who wasn't supposed to initially be on the trading block. You also have in Florida Radko Gudis, the, the Panthers, not only in a precarious position when it comes to the playoffs, but having a need to shed some salary ahead of activating some players off of LTIR. So we've resulted in a market where, especially when you look at Gavrikov still in the market as we record this podcast, Chicken still in the market as we record this po- podcast, Edmondson, there's still a lot of defensemen available where the market's kind of been flooded with with them and Shen wouldn't really be the, on the top of the priority list of, of a lot of these teams in terms of a player quality. It's it's a, it's simple supply and demand, especially when you look at the forward market in, in contrast. A lot of the forward big forward names are off the market and that's where a lot of the depth guys are now. They're seeing, you saw a team like Tampa then have to overpay for a name like Tanner Janot. That's not happening on the D market and for the Canucks to walk away from it for with a third round pick, uh, not bad, uh, not bad at all. No, fair enough. And you know, ultimately, they needed to extract some value for the asset, right? And and Luke Shen is that. And it's interesting. You talk about the flood of defensemen that have suddenly become available and, and are in the conversation. A few days ago, we we do a TSN trade bait board, right? Where we talk, you know, we go through the top thirty trade candidates, and it's constantly moving as players get added because now all of a sudden we're hearing reports they're available and players get traded for or pulled off the market and they get removed. It wasn't that long ago, Luke Shen was literally number four on our trade bait board league-wide. And now he's like 11 you know, prior to this trade because as you talk about the number of defensemen that have been added, and while most of those were left shot defensemen and Shen's a right shot, they still are players with, with a little bit more um, you know, cachet as it were. So Luke Shen goes back to where he started his NHL career. He was the fifth overall pick in the draft uh, back in 2008, spent four years with the Leafs before moving on to Philadelphia. And, you know, we we know the journey and the number of stops he's made, but now he goes back to where it began for him. The Leafs have been active. They are all in. Where does Luke Shen fit in in Toronto? It's really tough because Sheldon Keefe has about a million different D-pair combinations he can put together because Jake McCabe, left shot defenseman who they just acquired from the Blackhawks, 
can play both sides. TJ Brody, left shot defenseman, can play both sides. They just acquired Eric Gustafson as well, an, an offensive defenseman who can sort of chip in in a depth role. So it, it's tough to say. The one thing I, I will point to is that with Janot being in Tampa Bay's fold now and the Leafs and Lightning essentially lock to play each other in the playoffs in the first round because they're second and third in, in the Atlantic division. Shen gives them a bit more toughness, the ability to stop the cycle, some more physicality to deal with a forward like Janot, a crash, crashing and banging sort of forward who he would have played in their bottom six and would have faced a lot of the Leafs as, for example, third pair. And that's where the Leafs now have the option of being able to put together a, a D pair with Shen on it that can withstand some of those elements. They don't have to worry as much about getting pushed around, which I think is is really important come playoff time where the real estate inside near the front of the net is valued at such a uh, such a premium. So, I mean, it's tough because there's like a million com- com- combinations they could go with with their D pairs. I mean, they could go with Riley and McCabe on their top pair, uh, Giordano and Brody together, and then Gustafson, Gustafson and Chen, but then there's also Lilligren who's played really well. So maybe he's he's in the in the equation, and maybe you look at McCabe and Chen on a third pair. Maybe Chen is their seventh D right now, uh, at least to start things. And, and there's a rotating cast based off of the opponents that they play. I don't know, and who knows? The Leafs may have another sort of move in the pike. I mean, what they've made three or four trades just today with Engvall, with Gustafson, with Sandine, with Chen. So I, I don't know what they're going to do on on the blue line exactly, but he gives them an a, an element of physicality on the right side that they probably don't otherwise uh, have a lot of. So all those names you mentioned, let me mention to you the Canucks defenseman who played last night, knowing that OEL is hurt, <laughs> Ethan Bear is hurt. The Canucks had Quinn Hughes and Tyler Myers. And then after that, it was, and they didn't play together, Hughes played with, Noah Juleson, Myers played with Guillaume Brisebois. Then we had Christian Wolanin and Kyle Burroughs on the third pair. What an epic cast of characters back there. You know, we talk about some of the young forwards that Canucks have to make decisions on over the course of the rest of this season and how you want to use them. And we'll get into that later in the show. But, you know, there's young guys you want to get a look at. None of these guys are even young. They're 25 and above. There's nothing here. So, and I bring that up not to chuckle because we're chuckling. But the con- the conversation has been out there that the Canucks should take a fly, not a flyer, but to go back and attempt to re-sign Luke Shen this offseason. This is where he wants to be. Clearly, there are a lot of spots available, right? I mean, even if OEL comes back, he's a left-side defenseman and really, you know, okay, maybe Ethan Bear, they, they, they've got to figure something out there contractually. But is there a case to be made beyond the sentimental? You know, because you know how I am, right? Um, I generally care more about people than players. I care more about Vancouver than the Canucks. So, you know, certainly it was disappointing to see that they put themselves in a situation to have to move on from Bo Horvat. Now the other guy in that room that exudes class and character is Luke Shen, gone. Um, and, you know, I, I'm certainly not that player that believes you should overpay and overterm for character like the Canucks used to do, you know, uh, under Jim Benning on a regular basis. But is there a case to be made that the Canucks should go back after Luke Shen and sign him to a contract this offseason? If it's reasonable, yes. And this What's is reasonable. Maybe well he, well here's the thing. Let me preface by saying you have to look at the D market last offseason, for example, and consider you look at a player like Ilya Labushkin, sort of checks similar boxes as, as a bottom pair, physical, stay at home, sort of shut down. Defender Labushkin got 2.75 million per year for two years. Jan Ruda, similar sort of thing, bottom pair, bigger defenseman, got 2.75 times, I want to say three years. So while we were having this debate of whether the Canucks should just re sign Shen if the return isn't high enough, the other thing to keep in mind is Shen isn't going to be a sub $1 million player anymore. And in, in, no, and sure. in having said that, I think in terms of what's reasonable, for me, it'd be just about keeping the term down. That that would be the biggest thing is one two years max. It would be my. Would you sign him for? Would you sign him for two years at two point five per? Two point two five per? Would you? Potentially, I mean, 
the other thing to, to sort of keep in mind is I think, yes, I, I think, I think so. I'd have to think I'd, I'd have to consider my other options in the off season and what you're going to do with Ethan bear. The thing is he's 33 now. Shan is. And I think over the last couple of months, we saw his game fall off a little bit. So see on a one-year deal, I'd, I'd like sign that in, in a heartbeat. The second year of that in his age, what would it 35 season? That's where I'd be a little bit cautious. But on the other hand, I mean, there is validity to as much as we say, as much as we joked about, you know, how the last administration would go out and, and acquire sort of character and leadership guys, like the Canucks do need veteran, like do need veterans who can sort of stable that ship. And again, you don't need to overpay for those guys because Shen, like the Canucks acquired him originally at such a cheap rate. Those guys are available in free agency. So, and having said that, like, like there is merit to that. There is value in having a player like Shen in your locker room, especially in your transitory phase where you don't have a captain. <sighs> yeah, the second year would worry me. I'd have to think about that. I'd, I'd sign him for two for a two year deal, but I'm curious to see if anyone will give him three. I don't think they will. I don't think he's valued no. to that degree. But if you could keep it, it, like, I think a two year deal for a player like that is is reasonable because he is a player that. You know, if you if you keep the number down, you could still play him as a seven. If your D improved that much, you could still play him as a seven. But you wouldn't want to be paying a seven two point two five or you, whatever it is. You right? wouldn't. You wouldn't. But so right that's now, where you they, have to kind of like again. I don't know that he's a significant drop off on Ethan Bear. To be quite honest with you, I understand that Bear is younger. Yeah. But well, if it's you know, and Bear's going to get more term just because of his age, but. You know, so for for me, I think there's value to bring a player like that back. He can play in so many roles. He can play on, I mean, you know, like he can help stabilize him. Quinn Hughes himself talked about comparing him to Chris Tanev and what he did for his game. And he has helped at times. Like he's a player you could play with a number of young defensemen. Not that this team necessarily has many more of those. Who knows what they're going to wind up doing with Jack Rathbone. But, you know, he's a guy that could legitimately be in your bottom pair and he could help stabilize other spots at different times. He can play on the penalty kill. Like there's there's value that he brings and he certainly outperformed his last contract, right? Uh, he shouldn't be at the stage where he's just hanging on to an NHL job and he's not a top four defenseman. But to me, there there's there's a market to be to be had for a player like that. And you know, and for me, look, I'm I'm gonna miss him. He carried himself exceptionally well, wore the logo exceptionally well. This isn't just a guy that's good at interviews. This isn't a media thing. This is a human thing. And given what he's going through with, with his family and his wife and, you know, she's giving birth and I'm curious to see how that plays out, right. As to whether or not he immediately reports or if he waits or, you know, how much flexibility he's given, because as you mentioned, Toronto now has a lot of options. So maybe they, they give him some time before he has to report. I'm curious, but he's a guy that conducted himself with a tremendous amount of class and character and he's somebody every player in that room should have learned a little bit from. Absolutely. Now, going back to the conversation we, we were just having, if you could guarantee that Shen could maintain his performance for the next two years, like where he's at right now, absolutely, I would sign that. It's The Canucks would have to just be wary in the offseason about, if you're, if you're signing him to a multi-year deal, what are, what's the probability that at 33, 34, 35, that you may have a precipitous decline in in a year two that's where i mean if it's 1.75 times two i'd i'd do that when, once you get to two and higher on a multi-year deal that's where i i think you'd have to think hard about it even though uh there's so many intangibles that the contract a contract at that number on a two-year term is not an anchor it's a minor nuisance they just moved riley stillman for heaven's sakes and i know he was 1.35 but i'm just saying like a contract like that with that little term doesn't hamstring you like some of the other ones this organization's gotten itself into. You're right, but think about how much it initially cost them to move like Dickinson's 2.6 or whatever it was. The point being, which was really a bad hard. idea. It, yeah, like even the point is like this team doesn't really have a margin for error with inefficient contracts. Even if it's on even it's even if it's with these small deals. That's why like we're we're talking about the Stillman trade for example. As such, uh, as a such, as such a small win for this for this franchise, because even though it's just one point three, whatever whatever his cap it is, that still matters. That still provides value to this club, considering how like how their cap picture looks otherwise. So yeah, it it does, and we'll, we'll get into his trade a bit later in the next block. But it's 
you know, it was almost that almost was a positive message to the to the fan base in terms of how they're going to do business as opposed to the actual 1.35, right? Like it, it'll, it'll help a little bit, but it's not going to, it's not going to change them. Like when you talk about moving money, 1.35 isn't a significant big M moving money, right? And, and again, like I said, I, I don't know that it'd be that level of impediment, but maybe look, maybe going on a two year deal allows them to bring the number down and, uh, and it works out for the player and the organization because I certainly think he can bring value. And, and you talked about transitionary phase that this is a group that they have just taken a big leap of faith in terms of throwing a lot of leadership and a lot of responsibility on some really young players. And given their stature in the organization, that's what they should be doing. But to have some guys that can hold them accountable and to continue to, to guide them in the right direction, I think is a really positive thing. Kind of like I do for you, right? You're this young guy and you've got all this, you know, everyone is throwing so much money at you and so much power at you and so much everything at you sometimes. And Drancer's not the guy to do that because Drancer's just worried about himself. Yeah. I don't know about all that money and, and, and power. It's, uh, if, if, if you're seeing that, I, I'm certainly not. But no, in all seriousness, <laughs> the one thing I will say is if this, if this team is committed to where it's like next season and the year after don't really matter, like if they're taking a longer term horizon to fixing this franchise and, and fixing the roster, then that's and, and like being competitive next season or the year after isn't front of mind as a priority, then absolutely you can afford to overpay a little bit. And if you want to bring Shen back in the offseason, if that's like if that's if that's the mindset you have in terms of a longer term horizon, then fine. I, I don't care. You can you can top you can top Shen up a little bit to ensure he comes back. I'm in. Let's bring him back. And uh, and hopefully everything works out with uh, Luke's wife and the birth of their uh, their next child and that everything kind of plays out as best as possible, given the current circumstances for the latest former Vancouver Canuck. When we come back, we'll get into the rest of our show, including a Canuck team that is winning far too much when the VanCast returns. Well, Harm, it's a snow day as we record this on Tuesday. Sometimes with this team, it feels like Groundhog Day, but coming off an overtime victory, uh, five minutes of overtime. Actually, the, they didn't even need more than a minute of the overtime, but we did need five minutes to determine whether or not Beauvillier was offside, had control, didn't have control. What is up with these long reviews? This is craziness. It is, especially... Uh, I was watching, I'm trying to remember which game it was. It was a, another NHL game, and it was basically like a 3-1, 4-1 sort of. It was the Calgary-Colorado game. And time had expired, and you know Colorado had won, big blowout win. And yet, for some reason, they decided to put time, bla- time back on the clock, and they were wasting time trying to figure out the exact amount of seconds. And I'm thinking, it, it literally does not matter whether it's 9 seconds or 11 seconds. The game's over, right? So in this case, I mean, it's obviously different because the stakes were legit in terms of the goal potentially coming back but i think it was pretty hilarious that all all you know all all both teams had to sort of come back the fans in the building had to sort of return to their seats and sort of think "Ooh, is there a chance that we're still in it and all of that just to <laughs> just to be like oh yeah the game's actually you know it's it's still over that was um that was pretty funny i thought but overall yeah i mean league-wide there has to be something done about how long some of these Reviews take was it the was it the Canucks game against Boston where there was that really long review as well where it was like how is it taking this long? Well, in each of the games against uh, St. Louis and Nashville on the on the mini road trip, they had long reviews that went against them and both got to the point. You know, one one involved an offside, uh, one involved I believe a high stick goal that we're thinking just give the other team the result, but let's just move this along because it's it's ridiculous, right? Like, not only I, that, I don't know how they haven't figured it out, and if. Maybe I'm a football guy, so I'm always thinking about clear and obvious, and certainly there's long ones in football as well, but if something takes that long, it's not clear and obvious. If something, you know, I've always said as a rule of thumb for any review, um, if you need more than 50, if you need to review it at more than half speed, again, it's not clear and obvious. Like, move some of this stuff along, right? And and kind of go by what you want to fix that's the egregious misses, not this stuff. But anyway, look, I, I know people don't want to get into all the reviews. There's another Well, not only interesting- that, I also wanted to quickly bring up when there is a review done, nobody knows what the like we all see the replays just like the refs do. And we have literally zero idea what way they're, they're going to rule just because there's so much gray area. Nobody knows what goaltender interference is, for example. Nobody knows what the um, the, the kicking the puck into the net is, whether it's a distinct kicking motion. If, if a puck deflects off the skate, does that count? Does it not count? So that's that's what makes it a little bit more sort of um, annoying as well is there's just no clarity. Yeah, you know, you're right. One thing that was clear was that 
Thatcher Demko and his return to the Canuck lineup looked pretty, pretty good, uh, you know, given the fact that he had missed 35 games, given the fact that, you know, there was a certain level of confidence that needed to return more so than us evaluating the injury per se, right? And even he admitted to that when when we asked him about it, you know, just that, yeah, the mental hurdles. But I think the extra time that got taken, which we thought initially was a setback, and maybe it was kind of a tweak, but ultimately he took extra time. We thought he was going to be able to go on the weekend. He wanted to go on the weekend um, uh, as far as a backup, at least. But ultimately they didn't do any of that. They waited a little longer. And when it was time to play, it was time for him to play fully. And, you know, he didn't back up once. He just got right into the starting lineup, made uh, 34 of 38, uh, stopped 34 of 38. And look, it it was a typical Canuck game at times in terms of what he's dealt with, right? And when you look at that second period, uh, shots in that second period were 20 to 3. Actually, it was 19 to 3 at the end of the period. And by time by the time the third period started, they had added a 20th shot. So they even got one in the intermission. Uh, it was it was that one sided. I think he, he faced 18 high danger scoring chances, stopped 17 of them. Um, it was it was a pretty impressive performance. Yeah, at one point, the broadcast mentioned that the high danger chances were 17 to three or something along those lines in favor of Dallas. So that just goes to show you how well Demko played. Now, early on, I think the key was in the first period, too, that he had some early bounces and that even I thought that first period for the Canucks was really solid in general. You know, in the final 40, they kind of fell apart. But not only did the Canucks play pretty well in the opening 20, but they got some breaks when the Stars did have chances, right? For example, uh, Mason Marchment off an early two-on-one. The pass had come across and he was essentially in all alone on Demko. He fanned on the shot and it went wide. Demko didn't have to make a save. Hints had a, had a partial breakaway where he wasn't really able to get a proper shot off, kind of ran out of real estate. He was hounded pretty well on the back check by, uh, by a Canuck there. Pavelski at another point in the game had a, had a breakaway go off the crossbar of the post. So he had some early breaks and then from there, once the activity started to pick up and Demko had some of the more routine saves, then, then that's where he really started dialing in the, the Dadnov, uh, saving the, saving the, in the slot from that one time in the first period. Jamie Ben was seconds left in the first period when the stars had that late face off with about five or six uh, seconds left. That could have changed the complexion of the game if Ben buries that backhander, but Demko with a brilliant save. Stopping Suter on the two-on-one in the second period. And then there was also that sequence, I can't remember which stars they were, where Demko had to s- completely stretch out fully to cover the right post on a wraparound, I believe. And then the play had come on the other side and he had to immediately then stretch fully to seal the left post and make a great save. And that to me was when I went, okay, Demko's back because if there was any play or any sequence that could have tested his groin, it would have been that one. And he did not hesitate. He looked dynamite there. He's 100% the reason the, the Canucks won uh, won the game. There were some good performances outside of that. Quinn Hughes, for example, was absolutely dominant. But no doubt that Demko stole one, which is great to see because was it the first game of the season you'd look at and go, that's your Demko stole the Canucks a win? Absolutely. Yeah, because that wasn't that didn't happen in the first half of the season. It just didn't, or in the first, you know, uh, two months of the season. Uh, and you're right. Like for me, it was exactly those post to post stretches that fully fully tested his groin that really showed me a lot. Uh, did you mention the offside that wasn't? Which thankfully they didn't score because then we would have meant a five minute review, um, where three Canucks put their hand up in the air, assuming it was an offside, and and you know Demko's got to make a really good save. But yeah, like he made the five alarm saves. There were 35 scoring chances. By Dallas in that game, including 18 of the high danger variety, as we had mentioned, his reads were really, really good. Like, you know, that's where you think there'd be some rush. You know, the the third and fourth goal were kind of both of those were kind of okay, right? They weren't great. But when you consider the the incredible saves he made throughout that game, especially in that second period, I don't think anybody's gonna quibble given it's his first game back after missing 35. I thought he played really, really well. Reads were dialed in, full ability to stretch, flexibility, athleticism, all of those things that Canuck fans need to see. But you know what? It really is unfortunate because now it's going to prevent a full-on tank. And this is what everybody was worried about, right? That the schedule, because they were playing, uh, I think they had eight games at one point against teams below them in the standings uh, as of about a week ago. So we knew they were going to win some games. But, you know, now they're going to wind up winning a few games they probably shouldn't win. Uh, So, you know, Vancouver now has won uh, four of their last five, which is not good if you're a tankist. Yeah, is it points in four or five, or have they legit won out four or five? Sorry, you're right. Points in four or five. They've won three of those. It was an OTL or shootout loss against Nashville. So they beat Philadelphia, uh, won in overtime against St. Louis, won in overtime against Dallas, lost in a shootout against Nashville, and then the Boston loss. So yeah, absolutely. They, uh, th- they're they 3-1-1 one one in their last five. Oh, my goodness. It 
always happens at this time of year where it's like finally you're looking at the playoff race. You're going, ooh, it's just not going to happen this year. Let's hope to tank out or at least lose most of our games and at least started to trend in that direction. I think a couple of weeks ago when you were looking at the Canucks' point percentage since January 1st, it was dead last in the NHL, but then they inevitably rattle off a stretch like this, especially when it's so unlikely, right? You have all of these players out, especially on the back end, Bears out, OELs out, Stillman gone. That decor, it was Hughes, and then it was Myers, Kyle Burrows, Christian Wolanin, Noah Juleson, and Guillaume Brisebaugh. With JT Miller out, Niels Oman was the second line center. They're going Amazing. up against a Dallas team. That's first in the central. And unlike some contenders, right? Like some teams when Boston came in, for example, you could tell that they'd kind of put it in cruise control a little bit. For that sure. They were, you know, pacing themselves, especially on, on a longer road trip. But the stars are struggling, right? They, they were giving it their absolute all. And the Canucks still somehow <clears throat> found a way to, uh, to win that game. It's like I tweeted out um, the warm up photo where the Kings all, uh, all wore Gretzky jerseys. And I, and I posted that uh, picture and I was like, the Canucks when it's supposed to be tanking season. Like, seriously, they do this every year. And I guarantee you, there's always some random guy that's going to go off in like between March to April that helps them win that, that helps helps them win a, a, an unexpected game here or there. Like in the past, it's been I remember UC Jokinen was acquired sort of uh, late and he ended up somehow putting up around 10 points in 20, 20 games. Uh, Brandon Sutter would sometimes go off. Uh, Brendan Leipzig, like you just have someone unexpected <laughs> delivering so much offense. So I've got my, I've got, uh, I've, I've got my eyes on Sheldon Dries here. I, I swear to God, someone like him is just yeah, gonna he's play been playing well. He's been playing well, and he's just he's he's gonna go off with like twelve points in twenty games or something with a couple of clutch goals, and and uh, it's all gonna go against the tank. It's uh, it's it's tough, but at the same time, I've almost gone to the point where you can't even get angry at it because. It happens every year. You come to expect it. It's just part of the Canucks hockey experience and inflicting maximum pain on this fan base. Yeah, Canuck lore. You know, and, and where you don't want to be is you don't, you know, you don't want to be in that 17 to 25 range generally, right? Like that's the worst place to be in the National Hockey League, right? The, the bottom teams get to feast. The top teams get to play in the playoffs. You don't want to be in that mushy middle. And right now the Canucks are at 27. And you know, they're three points behind Philadelphia, who's sitting at 25. They're they're absolutely climbing in the wrong direction because they've now got a four-point gap ahead of 28th place Arizona. Yeah, well, right. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago where they were right in that mix to be – they, they could have pushed for 30th, right? Like, when you look at it right now, like, Anaheim is at 31st with 47 points. If the Canucks would have just stayed 500 in this stretch – instead of picking up points in in four of their last five, right? Like if they had dropped three additional points, they'd be at 50 right now. They'd be within shouting distance of 30, 31st Anaheim. Yeah. And at this point too, they're sixth from last. So for me, I don't even mind at this yeah, point but, if they but stay points here. Wise, but points wise, no, but points wise, they're, they're three points out of like out of ninth, right? Like ninth from last. Yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. Like, that's my worry is it's not necessarily where they're at right now in the standing positions that they've already done a lot of the ascent. It's that I look at Montreal now that they don't have Cole Caulfield, especially if they potentially move a player or two at the deadline. I'm worried about how the Canadiens sort of fare over this uh, over this stretch, because a lot of times, especially when you have a young, inexperienced team they'll fade in the second half just because they, they aren't as well-equipped to handle the rigors of the schedule. They aren't as experienced. They don't have that initial sort of excitement that you do in the first half of the season. So I'm worried about them. I'm worried about Philly, especially because that team on uh, on papers is absolute dog crap. So it worries me to, to see where, where the Canucks are. But look, I mean, at this point, I've kind of resigned myself to knowing that this team always does this. And all we can hope is that by talking about it now that you know maybe we can jinx it or something yeah let's hope and it's funny i'm trying to recalibrate my brain in terms of games in hand so normally you'd say that the habs at 59 of a game in hand on the connection with 60 but it's actually the connection with the game in hand because uh they, they play more so everything is kind of backwards as you're trying to chase the bottom of it not the top of it because you don't want the extra games um uh, meanwhile, let's, uh, you know, we, we'll get into some of these other players. You know, you mentioned Sheldon Dries and certainly Anthony Beauvillier has been playing very well, but I, I want to get into the trade deadline because there are some, some subplots around, around all of this that we're dealing with right now. So Luke Shen 
continues to wait. The fourth straight game that Chen has been on the outside looking in. So when they sent him home from the road trip, we kind of thought that this was going to be imminent, right? That maybe he sits two games as a Canuck, but will get moved before that Boston game. Then maybe Boston's still in the mix. No, they're out. Now they might be in because they made some, they've cleared a little bit of cap space. And, you know, maybe you don't want to have to face him on day one. So you go through all of this, but they're still waiting. In the meantime, they've made a couple of, of smaller deals. But before we get into those smaller deals, let, let's look ahead because um, JT Miller's not in. He's not in the lineup. Uh, they're now saying he's out a week. I think we all believe there is a legitimate injury. Is it a tweak? Is it an injury that if this was a more serious situation, the Canucks had a chance to get into the playoffs, would they continue to grind him and, and let him play? There was some suggestion. I think Sat said it might have first occurred in the season opener against Edmonton, and he's been playing through it ever since. So if, if that is the injury and that is the case, certainly they would continue to ride him if there was something at stake. Um, but the, the timing of it is all curious, right? Because we didn't see anything in that game that would indicate an, a further injury, right? Like he didn't leave the game. He was seen the next day. He was seen after the game. Everything looked fine. Certainly something could have kicked in and worn him down after the fact, right? So I'm not saying there's no injury, but the timing of pulling him out of the lineup certainly makes you wonder. Yeah, especially because there's uncertainty in terms of the pot potential timeline of, of what exactly has happened with the injury, which again is legitimate, like you said, but on one hand, his camp has sort of said that, oh, it's it's just a little tweak and it's only going to keep him out for a week or so, but that the team comes out and announces that it's uh, week to week and some are wondering whether we may see him again before the end of this season. So there's a lot of uncertainty around, uh, around that. I think from this perspective of whether he can get dealt before the deadline or not, the one, one thing that's interesting that um, just from a technical perspective in terms of the financial hurdles is the retention sort of rule, right? Because you look at so many of the bigger cap hit deals that have been made in the NHL so far, whether it's a Ryan O'Reilly at se at a 7 million face uh, face cap hit or a Dmitry Orlov at $5.1 million cap hit. A lot of those deals have obviously been ones where, or or even McCabe and, and Lafferty in, in the case of, of Toronto's recent acquisition from Chicago. A lot of these deals have involved significant salary retention as well as third-party brokers. Now, the interesting wrinkle that uh, I believe it was Cap Friendly sort of uh, brought up was that, so Miller's current contract is obviously $5.25 million. The Canucks can't retain just on the expiring year of this season, right? So if, if the Canucks are trying to retain salary to make it easier for a club to take on his $5.25 million hit for, the, for this season, they'd essentially have to retain for his next contract as well, which is the $8 million per year times seven years. So right off the bat, that makes it a lot more challenging, I think, to get a, a deal done because now there are all of a sudden more hurdles for fitting his cap hit in just for this season, even though 5.25 typically isn't, uh, isn't a lot. I mean, even with the Horvat deal, the Canucks had to retain. So they can't really do that with this Miller one unless it's a, a very small retention that they're willing to live with for the entirety of the next seven, eight years. So that right off the bat makes you know, in my mind, makes it pretty improbable that he gets dealt before the deadline. I mean, you look at, for example, the reports today, I believe, out of the Pittsburgh uh, Post-Gazette that the Penguins have, uh, you know, been checking in on Miller and, and what it would take to, to potentially get a deal done. Even for the team like the Penguins, right off the bat, it's like they need to clear out a mid-range contract just to make that possible. But what's interesting is recently for today, I'd been working on a story of, of how sort of trades get negotiated. One interesting theme that came up was that a lot of the deals that eventually happen on draft day, for example, the seeds are planted ahead of the trade deadline. So even if we don't see a scenario where you know, Miller gets dealt or there's any serious conversation about it getting close, this could be the time where at least seeds are planted, ideas are generated, and potentially these are the types of talks that could get revisited ahead of the draft. So that's going to be interesting to see. Again, I think, you know, I'd be really, really surprised if anything happens before the deadline. But the fact that there has been so much smoke, so many rumors, so much speculation around Miller, it at least opens up like it's it's encouraging to me that it hasn't at least been we haven't seen reports coming out where it's like automatically the Canucks aren't willing to to listen. It's no chance it's happening. Like you're at least able to get your hopes up that before his extension kicks in for next season, that even if it's in the uh, even if it's in the offseason before July 1st, that maybe, maybe things, things could align and, and there's at least a, a possibility. 
Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, he was adamant. So when we spoke to him a week ago in Vancouver, he did not believe he was going to be traded and uh, certainly wasn't, it wasn't weighing on him like it has been in years past, but uh, it just doesn't seem to go away. We're going to go away for a quick second. When we come back, so much more to get into following last night's game. Uh, the newest trades that, that the Canucks have made in the last few days, some minor deals that signal pretty good process when the Van Cast returns. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. I want to remind you that I've been driven here to this episode of the VanCast by my good friends at Key West Ford in the snow in my new Mach-E. Let's talk about a couple of these trades. So Kravtsov, I, I didn't think we would see him right away, but given the circumstances around this Canuck roster uh, with Miller being injured and just them being out of forwards here available today, uh, he's here and, he's, and he played last night. And before we get into his performance, just take us through the trade and what it signals, because for me, both that trade and being able to part with Riley Stillman are indications of good process and what they're trying to get done here. Absolutely. The club's done some uh, solid work here. I wasn't surprised that we saw him right away just because he'd ha- he'd have to clear waivers to uh, to be sent down to, uh, to the minors, and I think somebody would claim him. So you have to give him a shot in the NHL. It's making it with, uh, with the big club or, or bust. I like also the fact that there's a higher probability that he'll be able to, to be comfortable and fit in given how many Russians there are on, on the team. He obviously played with uh, Pod Colson back in the day uh, for Russia at the World Juniors. You also have Mikhaev's not in the, not in the lineup right now, obviously because of his uh, injury, but he's, he's a Russian. Kuzmenko's obviously a Russian. It helps in terms of, I think, making it easier for a player like Kravtsov, who's been through a lot of adversity, to really find his footing, to really become familiar. Because think about it, just from the human side of it, right? He was drafted by New York. There were higher profile prospects in Kako and Lafreniere, Lafreniere, who ended up taking, ended up essentially pushing Kravtsov down the depth chart, right? Because they're they're also both all three of them were wingers. So Kravtsov kind of lost that some of that luster. He didn't get as much opportunity. Now he's in an environment where, yeah, okay, they they had Panarin as at least one Russian, but it's not really. A, f- a familiar sort of environment for him. There was all of that back and forth where initially he bolted for the KHL, came back. There was just a lot of friction in that relationship between the player and the team. The Rangers obviously haven't done a good job overall of developing forward prospects. So for him to have a fresh start in an environment where he's going to have a lot of uh, a lot of friends on this team, I think that's pivotal because I think in any case, especially given the amount of wingers the Canucks have, there could be highs and lows in terms of the opportunity he gets. And I think it will help his uh, his resolve. Now, in terms of the move itself, I mean, the Canucks basically gave up nothing, right? Lockwood wasn't really going to be part of the club's future plans. He kind of faded out, and I don't think he was going to be anything more than a 13th or 14th forward in the league at best, the sort of piece that you can easily find on uh, on waivers. And then a seventh-round pick. I mean, I'd rather have Kraftsoff than a seventh-round pick. You you look at him as a player, Kraftsoff, six foot three. he's got a good shot. There's clearly a lot of skill, and we saw a little bit of it last night in, um, in bursts. The areas for him to improve on to fulfill his ceiling, become a productive middle six player, I think are, number one, his work rate away from the puck. That's typically been inconsistent. That's been a drawback and criticism of his game uh, in the past. Number two, I think we'd all like to see him add more of a power element to his game where he drives the net, right? Because he has the size, I think one of the drawbacks one of the areas that uh, the rangers wanted him wanted him to improve on was okay take the puck to the net use your size learn how to leverage it the other part of it too is and this relates a bit to the work rate side of it he doesn't bring a lot to the table outside of the offensive part of it and so a lot of times you have players that will arrive in the nhl and they don't produce enough offensively to stick in a top six role and they don't provide enough of the reliability, the forechecking, the def- the sort of defensive smarts, the special teams value to justify a coach putting them in a bottom six role long term on a good team. So that's where Kraft's off. He's either going to need to produce at a high end enough rate to where you're like, okay, he's a definite 35, 40 point scorer. And that's his ticket into, into, 
into being an NHL regular, or he's going to have to round out the other parts of his game to where you can consistently count on him in a bottom six role. The, the concern would be if he's, let's say, a 25, 26, 27, 28 point player in that high 20s, low 30s range. Plus, he's a bit of a question mark defensively and in other parts of the ice. But no doubt, I mean, this is a great pro- great process sort of move for the Canucks. They ba- they basically give up nothing. It's a, it's a free flyer. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and again, you, you hit the nail on the head and a player like Will Lockwood, who I certainly wanted to see at this level as it's played out. I mean, he's probably a player that is easily replaceable, right? I mean, a guy that you can pick up on waivers is going to be in the bottom of your lineup. But there's obviously a ceiling here. They're not afraid to take a big swing here. I think it made a lot of sense. It fits what they've said they're trying to do. It players it didn't work out for in their first stop, but still young enough to maybe get an opportunity to, to turn things around in the right environment. Um, I didn't, he didn't look out of place in his nine minutes of playing time yesterday. It wasn't necessarily noticeable for all the right reasons either, but he, you know, given who they're icing right now, it probably doesn't hurt them at all to roll him out there for a few more games here before looking at other options in the American Hockey League. Um, and as far as Riley Stillman, you know, moving him for a young prospect, still 19 years old, Josh Bloom, sorry, from Buffalo. Um, you know, and certainly when you look at a player like Stillman, I haven't been a fan of his game since day one, but he also wasn't necessarily put in the best situation, playing a lot with Tyler Myers. Uh, high event hockey doesn't necessarily allow him to blend into the background a little bit. You know, there's some there's some challenges being a part of this blue line period. But in the end, when you when you look at the math in terms of what they when they acquired him as as part of the Jason Dickinson deal, and now you move him, um, in the end, it it turns into a pretty good bit of business as far as uh, clearing out a small amount of salary cap, 1.35 million, but it did, it wasn't working out, move them along, let some of the minor league guys get some time and just, and clear off the salary because it wasn't going to be part of the future. Absolutely. I mean, if the Canucks, there's an alternate timeline where they, where they would have moved him just for future considerations and not taking any salary or, or contracts back. I think even in that scenario, we would have called it a win just because you're netting that 1.35 million or so in cap space, considering, League minimum is what seven hundred fifty thousand. It's he's almost double that, and this team could use every bit of flexibility possible. The fit wasn't right here, so for the Canucks to not only get off of that contract in an environment where teams have been very wary of taking on contracts with term beyond this season, that's absolutely a win in and of itself. Before you even get into the Josh Bloom aspect, where that's a legit prospect, twenty twenty one third round pick, probably not the high ceiling. You look at his uh, production rate in the OHL in his draft plus two season, only around the point per game mark, but he's got tools that could translate to the pro level in terms of his speed. He's a really good penalty killer. There could be bottom six upside uh, one day for for him to sort of land in the, in the fold. From a process standpoint too, the, one of the most encouraging parts of it is, did they showcase Stillman to eventually lead into this type of trade because one thing that Drancer and I noticed when we looked at various Canucks players' deployment under Rick Tockett was that Stillman at that time when we had written that article had only three defensive zone starts. So he was never starting in the defensive zone and his overall minutes had been spiked significantly to where he was logging 18 a night. Some nights he was even getting close to crossing 20 plus. So they were sort of juking his minutes, not giving him any decent starts like if this was a case where the management and coaching staff were aligned to sort of identify a player that wasn't part of the long-term plans, identify a contract that they wanted to get off of and thinking, all right, let's put him in a position to succeed. Let's showcase him for other teams. And ahead of the deadline, we want to get this, get this contract off our books and to, you know, have it done that way. If that was indeed their logic and thought process, because, you know, I don't know that it was deliberately done that way, but it certainly seems that way. Then that's, that to me is, is really encouraging from a process standpoint not just the result, but how they got there in terms of propping up his value a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if that was part of the strategy, um, that alignment is something that just wasn't there, right, with, with Bruce Boudreaux. And look, we, you and I are both fans of Bruce, uh, so this isn't an after-the-fact conversation. It's just a reality that they wanted to make sure they had their guy. They've got their guy. They've got their guy who's coaching with zero pressure whatsoever. So he can make these decisions, right? You, you can continue to roll them out. Now, he also didn't play the last couple of games beforehand. I wonder if that had anything to do with this. Yeah, honestly, I hadn't thought about it that way. I I don't know. I I can't even recall the the circumstances. The last few games honestly feel like uh feel like a blur. So yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, all right, uh, let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Ratu, another player that we've seen now. They've given him the recall. He's had a couple of games. Uh, got a point. Got a first assist uh, the, uh, last night. What do you make of what you've seen from him? 
it's been solid so far for me anyway, because you have to keep the context in mind. The young man's basically had his world turn upside down. The, the team that drafted him, all of a sudden trading him, he's coming to a new country in Canada, which is don't don't forget about the logistical sort of um, sort of challenges of moving from the states to to Canada. The visas involved and all that sort of stuff. He goes to Abbotsford, has a tough time acclimating there. Only had one, uh, I believe, one assist in eight games. Then comes up to Vancouver, wants to obviously make probably feels pressure too, where it's like I'm one of the centerpieces of this trade that uh, sent out the captain, the fans, the, the management is probably expecting a lot. I've got a new coach to to sort of impress and sort of leave an impression on in my attempt to land and, and hopefully make the roster full-time for next season. So in that context, what we've seen from him so far, I think, um, you know, I think it's been pretty solid. I mean, I've liked the, there's, you can clearly see with him playing center, there's a deliberate effort to come deep in the defensive zone to support the puck, to help the defenseman out, which among the forward groups, I haven't seen enough of, right? Look, this Canucks D, we know can't move the puck well, but when you look at the forwards as well, this is a point I brought up earlier in the season. They're often so disconnected. It's like the forwards leave the zone. The D have no sometimes passing options and they have to go glassing out or, or try and make a home run pass just because they have no other options. I like the fact that Ratu has that DNA in him to play like a traditional center, to want to help his defensemen out. You can understand why he has that label of being a, a quality two-way player, especially when um, he's got that reputation, not only within this organization, but with scouts and teams around the league that were evaluating him in the lead up to his draft class. That's sort of the way he's been He's been built, one of his main calling cards. He's not just an offensive player. So clearly, I, I've seen that in the small glance, in the small taste of NHL action we've seen from, from him so far with the Canucks. The assist that he made to take that, I believe it was Quinn Hughes' sort of um, long pass and stride and then feed Pod Coles. And I think that's, you know, a sign of how much he's improved with his playmaking and vision because that was one of his biggest knocks was this is a player who has a really good shot, but can he set other players up? Can he one day in the NHL when he's in his prime, is he the sort of player that you typically want centers that can help their wingers out? But there were concerns about is Ratu that sort of player? I think that's a perfect example of how he started to make strides in that area of his setup ability over the last uh, year or so. So that's really encouraging to me as well. So I've generally liked what I've seen and I think it's a little bit different with Ratu. I'm fine with him sort of playing a reduced role just, just to sort of get his feet wet. But overall, when I look at one of his line mates in Vasily Podkolzin, kind of going in a different direction here, but over the next little stretch, I would like to see him, Podkolzin that is, play a little bit more. I'm not saying he needs to be playing top six minutes. I'm not saying he needs to be playing 15, 16 minutes a night, but it's been interesting looking at, like these games don't mean anything for, for the Canucks. They should really be about developing their, developing their young players, especially with all of these bodies out now. Looking at Pod Colson's ice time, played under nine minutes against the Stars last night, 9.30 against Boston, 10.40 against St. Louis, 7.59 against Nashville. So instead of being in around that seven, eight, nine minute mark for Pod Colson, for example, and I know I'm going on off on a bit of a tangent, but I'd like to see a player like Pod Colson sort of in that 11, 12, 13 minute range, just getting that small bump to get more shifts instead of, um, I think we've seen Tockett ride his top players a lot more heavily than... Uh, you know, I, I anticipated he would. Yeah, no, I tend to agree, especially, as you said, given the lineup that's out there right now, there is no reason not to be playing some of these guys more. Uh, we'll get into that in a couple more uh, items, especially on the back end when the Van Cash returns. So let's stay on let's stay on Ratu and Pod Colson. Um, and I also want to get into uh, Quinn Hughes, who just made a ridiculous stretch pass to Ratu before the before he uh, set up um, the uh, the Pod Colson goal. But let's let's talk a bit about situations we could be seeing these guys more in because both players are going to eventually wind up back in the American Hockey League during the playoffs, right? Uh, we know they want them to be a part of that process. And when they go back there, they're going to be seeing more key minutes. Is there a case to be made given, you know, you said, I don't want to see them play 15, 16 minutes. Well, why not? Right? Like, why does Pedersen have to play, uh, you know, in the mid-20s uh, most nights, right? 24 minutes again last night. I, I get that there's such a drop-off, but given the fact these games mean so little, why not play some of these players more? Why not give some of them second power play unit time? Why why can't we see them more at this stage? It's a valid question, especially like I get it recently because now you've had a lot of bodies out, but even before Bear had gotten injured, even before Stillman had been traded, you you were seeing Hughes consistently creep up in a 30-minute range. And it's been surprising even seeing the the types of minutes, you know, Miller and Patterson consistently getting up above 20. Because one of Tockett's first things that he said when he was introduced as, as head coach was, 
I want to scale back my top players' minutes a little a little bit. I think they've been playing Absolutely. a little bit too much. So it's been really surprising to me. When I look at a player like Pod Colson, for example, you're talking about, okay, what are the situations we could potentially use to juice his minutes a little bit higher? Why not give him some second unit penalty kill time, right? I'm looking at Pod Colson and for him this season, we haven't seen enough offensive development. I'm still high on him as a, as a player, but there is a legit chance that he's maybe just a third line sort of winger moving forward and not, you know, a top six player who has 50, 60 plus point upside in the prime of his career. If that's the case, you want to, you want him to be the sort of player that can provide meaningful value in a lot of different aspects, because that's the way that he was built in his draft class was he's hard nosed. He's competitive. He's smart defensively. He never cheats for offense. So if that's the, if that's the sort of um, way that he's been built and he can provide value in those areas, then why not give him a chance to penalty kill? Because because this this PK is 32nd in the league and it's improved, I think, in the last few games, but these games don't matter. The penalty kill is awful. What do you lose from giving him a bit of uh, a bit of reps in that sort of role just to see if he can grow into that sort of role for next season? Because because guess what? From next season on, the coaching staff, guess what? They're gonna have actual expectations. They're going to want to, even if this team is in a retooling mode, they're still going to want to win as many games as, as possible because it matters for their resume. As opposed, so in in those games when they matter at the start of next season in October in November, if you've never used Pod Colson in a PK role before, for example, are you going to be that much more hesitant about using him there when those games actually have stakes? As opposed to now, when it's Absolutely. like nobody cares if they win or lose. Nobody, your fan base is hoping that you lose more than you win anyway. <laughs> so instead of no, well, look. So instead it, of it's a, especially when you play a team like Dallas because the game matters to them. Like I want to see him in at least a one-way stakes environment, because are you going to be more confident seeing him on the PK against Dallas than you are watching him play against Bakersfield? Yeah. What's going to give you more confidence going into next season? See what he does against Dallas. And that should be part of the organizational alignment, right? That you've got to play these guys talk. So play these guys, like play them. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this is a case where talk is just trying to slow play them for the first handful of games. And we'll see someone like Pod Colson get more, reps um once once he's got his feet wet in the nhl again maybe that's part of the plan maybe there's been a conversation that's 100 possible but yeah in the, in the big picture i think we want to see him get those uh get those pk reps because that's part of that's going to be part of his evolution as uh, as a player and also he's not 18 or 19 years old anymore right like we're looking at pod Coles and he's, he's 21 in, in in a few months he's gonna be 22 right like now's the time to sort of build him up into that role because he's got to be something right he's he's either he's not going to be and there still is obviously a lot of upside with his offense, but if, if he's not going to be a superstar offensively and he's got the defensive potential in him, right? That's the key too, is we've seen it all along, then let's grow him that, in that area. So that, so that's one area that um, that you'd hope is, you'd hope the team looks to prioritize over the balance of the season. And when you look at what's happening on the back end, there's no prospects there, right? There's four players playing last night that were not with this team at the start of the season. There's Hughes, Myers, and then after that, you've got uh, Juleson, Breezeball, Willan, and Burroughs, and none of these guys are part of the long-term picture for what this blue line should look like. So you're just kind of rolling them out there. So from a prospect development perspective, what you're seeing on the back end really isn't benefiting you. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's not nothing really to, to see on uh, see on the back end. It's it's the forward group where, I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of you know, you're, you're probably still going to have to make a decision based off of the rest of the season in terms of his studnika in your plans is he even worth giving a contract to considering he's uh he's an rfa you've got a decision to make there i mean i'm sure this is the point where you're trying to figure out okay how close is rot to to making an nhl impact for next season and based off of that they're probably going to make a decision in terms they're you know in terms of okay can we pencil him in for roster spot for next season how does that impact our offseason plans Trying to figure out, uh, you know, obviously with Kraftsoft now, eventually are we going to see Ho Hoaglander come up? So it's really the forward spots where there's such a logjam, especially on the wings, and especially because with players like Besser, Garland, Beauvillier, you're trying to so showcase some of these guys as well. And now that Miller's out long term, it makes it more challenging for these wingers to generate, you know, prop up a lot of a lot of point totals if you're trying to showcase, for example, Garland or Besser. So that's going to be an interesting subplot is the oppor the prime opportunities for some of these wingers are are dwindling, right? And this is not not about the young players, this is just about the wingers in general. So how is Taka going to manage putting players in in a position to succeed, giving them time like because in his in his mind, he's he's obviously going to want to give players, you know, rotate guys, give 
give them opportunities with with Pedersen. But at a certain point, it's also going to you know it's also going to be a case of I can only give a guy second or third line minutes for so long before. I need to give this other guy, Kravtsov or Pod Colson or, or Hoaglander, if he eventually comes up, I need to give this guy an opportunity to sort of show to you know showcase himself. But then the, the trouble, the risk that you run into is you don't just want to give a guy two games in in a middle six role and then yank him and be like, oh, all right, like you may not give him, you, you may not be giving him enough time to build chemistry in that sort of role. So for as much as you know, we're talking about you know. Get, you know, trying to maximize the opportunities for a player like Pod Colson, and I still think you can do that despite the logjam on the wings. I don't envy the sorts of decisions that he's going to have to make in constructing these forward lines. Well, one of the players you mentioned, Anthony Beauvillier, has certainly taken advantage of his opportunity. Uh, six goals, five assists, 11 points in nine games. Now, uh, I, I'm sure the cynic would say that you or I could do that playing alongside of Elias Pettersson. And there's some truth to that, right? The way Petey's going right now, I mean, he is playing at a superstar level. Everybody around him is going to play well. But not everything this guy has done has started and ended with Pedersen, including the goal last night that he set up in overtime. Um, and, I, and I know three on three is different, but he's showing a lot of confidence. He's showing a lot of confidence with and without the puck. What do you make of what you've seen from him? Because they certainly are in a position this offseason to, to want to go and extend him if they so choose to do that. But at the same time, I mean, I don't think they're going to again on Friday. No, I don't either. But like, what what have you seen from him and what should the organization's takeaway be? Yeah, I mean, it's been really positive, right? Like you mentioned, the challenge is going to be figuring out how much of that production, how much of that value, how much of him looking great is tethered to playing with Elias Pettersson. Because we even saw it during the, um, the tail end of last season when the Canucks had so many injuries. Alex Chason started looking like a competent top top nine winger. Now, Pavilion is obviously <laughs> so much better than Chason. So like, it's not even comparable, but that's where the Canucks, I think, would be wise to sort of try and proactively make a decision on what exactly they believe Beauvillier actually is. Because look, if he continues a strong play through the end of the season, Beauvillier has got a $4 million cap hit. And Sat brought, brought up a, a good point in mentioning that Nino Niederreiter, who's Point totals are very, whose goal and point totals are very similar to Bovillier's. Also has a four million dollar cap it for next season. Just went for a second round pick to uh, to Winnipeg. Now Niederreiter's, I think teams would value him higher because he has more size, he has more shutdown defensive ability, he's more of a net front guy. I think teams covet those qualities, especially come playoff time. But for example, if Bovillier keeps this up, you're looking at the end of the end of the season. You could look at a scenario where we've been having this conversation about. Could the Canucks look at dealing him at next year's trade deadline and getting an asset for him? Well, the question I'd have yep. is, has he rebuilt his value quickly enough to where you could get something for him in the offseason? And not only would you get an asset, but then all of a sudden you can use some of that cap space to upgrade your blue line to if you want to take a bad contract and acquire more assets like you like that could be an avenue to opening up a lot of cap flexibility. And the one thing I'd caution fans at this stage is. Pavilions look great. Don't don't get me wrong, but don't fall in love with with players too quickly, right? Like good teams know how to put players in a position to succeed, prop them up, and then be quick about selling them. At, you know when their values at uh, at a high. We've seen how difficult it is with Garland and Besser to move high salary wingers. I mean, heck, the Islanders tried really hard last offseason to deal Pavilier, and there just wasn't much of a market for him. The advantage of having a player like uh, a superstar like Pedersen is okay. You want you want him to have at least one high-end running mate, which is Kuzmenko. And then on the opposite um, on the opposite wing, you want to have efficiency. You want to be able to plug a guy in who doesn't make a lot of money and have him be successful in that sort of role. So I, I'm going to be curious to see where exactly the organization stands in terms of do they view Beauvillier as a player that they just want to prop the value of and you deal him in the offseason or at next year's deadline? Or is this a legitimate test drive of is he part of our future beyond next season yeah see that makes me nervous because what he's making now and what he's likely to be able to ask for based on what he's done in this sample size on top of what his previous contract was i don't want that i don't want that here you know because again if you take him off that line obviously he's not going to meet that kind of production but is he going to be able to get 75 percent of that kind of production and then where's the value in that to me i think the best thing they've done is create an asset they acquired him, they've built him up, they propped him up, as you suggested, and now he's a legitimate asset. He's more movable than he was earlier when the Islanders tried to move him. So whether that's now, and when you look at how difficult it is to move term, I think moving him at next year's deadline, I think his value is going to be incredible. Not incredible. Like it's not like they're going to, it's not like he's going to net like a first and a major asset, but he's going to, he's going to net 
a meaningful, tangible piece that's going to be a part of your future. So for me, I think the best thing to do is potentially hang on to him, continue to climb his value. And then next year at the deadline, when these guys can be moved as rentals, I think that makes such a, um, a greater difference. And on that topic, I don't think they've done enough to try to rebuild Garland's value since Tockett's got here. Right. I mean, he's he's not necessarily playing with their top guys. He's kind of in and out a little bit with Miller. He hasn't played consistently there. Do you think they've done enough there to try to rebuild his value? I honestly don't think there's a whole lot more, in in my opinion, just because Pedersen's like Kuzmenko's clearly been the guy there and now Bavillier's found found a home there. I, you know, so for for that reason, I don't think you shoehorn Garland onto the Pedersen line and No, but when Miller was there, like I, I, was there more that could have been done? No, I, I think he got a lot of minutes with Miller, to be totally honest. I, I thought I think earlier in the season under Boudreaux, maybe was when I looked at Garland and went, okay, he's he's the first winger that gets demoted to that dries line, right? So yeah. he, he clearly felt like the odd man out under Boudreaux. I would say that that was a scenario where I'd look at and go, they haven't done enough. But since Tockett's come in, I think they've handled it really well, especially because I don't see a role for him on power play one. Beauvilliers fit, fit in well there. Kuzmenko has clearly found a home there this season. I mean, maybe you could make a case that you give him more of a consistent shot with... Uh, with Besser, and we've seen you know shades of it now with uh, with Miller out of the lineup, maybe. But Garland's never been a prolific power play scorer over the course of or over the course of his career, and he's looked so much better over the last couple of weeks, two three weeks. So I think they have done enough to be totally honest. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up just while we were talking, while we were having the conversation about uh, Beauvillier, it's interesting because you know we can have this debate about what they do with him in the off season or at next year's deadline. The biggest thing they've done is they've created options for themselves. They've created flexibility hopefully where one point that managers sort of bring up when they view teams and the philosophy uh, of managing them is you want to have players and contracts that you can liquidate easily is is the point where you know people will bring up a, a team like you know Ta- Tampa or or you know any other team that's up against a cap but where superficially that team may be up against the ceiling but if they have players that you can really quickly move on a dime that teams would covet contracts. You can move contracts that are liquid. That's not nearly as bad of a position to be in. If you've, if you're up against a cap, but you've got contracts that you can move because that means you're one or two phone calls away from being able to move, make the move if, ne- if necessary. So that's, I think one element, one element is they've got flexibility. They can sort of make their plans accordingly, hopefully. And, um, and if you can sustain this run, that's where they've created options where, you know, he may, it may still make most, most sense to deal in, in, at the deadline, but the flexibility aspect is it opens up more options for what they could do in the offseason where now they can actually feel like they, they have some money to work with, where if, if there's defensemen they want to go after that makes four or five million dollars, they can all of a sudden say, okay, well, we can maybe move Bovillier out, have the money and then go after that defenseman as opposed to, you know, we've seen with Garland and, and Besser, like that's, those are examples of players that have contracts at their cap hits where they aren't easily liquid, where they're hard to move. So that's, I think, the dis- distinguishing factor is Bovelier is hopefully putting himself, separating himself from that Garland Besser tier where, you know, it, it, it hopefully gives management options down the road. What about uh, what we're expecting? So the, our next show, we will do a post-trade deadline pod on Friday. Drancer will be a part of it. Uh, so we'll send out the time and the links and everything like that for all of our VIPs. Um is there any chance any of these other players get moved? Is there any chance they acquire somebody to test drive uh, similar to what we've seen in these last two deals? Uh, is there anything like that? What are you expecting between now and Friday? With Besser, I'm going to be interested to see where exactly is the Canucks' appetite at in terms of retaining a little bit of salary. Because again, at that, he's a, he's a good player and teams, I'm sure, would value him, but I'm sure they like him a lot more at, let's say, $5 million if the Canucks retain a little bit of salary as opposed to... 6.66. So do they have a willing willingness management? And I'm sure that willingness depends on, you know, is the team actually willing to give up a significant asset like a second round pick? Otherwise, you know, if if the proposal is, let's say you have to retain a million, a million and a half for the li- lifetime of Besser's remaining deal and you're only netting, let's say a mid-round pick, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, I don't think that would really be why, that appealing. Why would you do that? Exactly. Yeah, like, I mean, like, there's no point for them I, the to longer do that. You, the longer you keep Besser the more his value increases, not decreases. So you, you go through this exercise 
at next year's deadline, you know, and he's not a, while he has been open to a trade, he's not hard demanding one, right? Um, I think, you know, he wants clarity as much as anything else at this stage of the season, even if long-term uh, he'd like to, to make a move. But I don't think they should fire sale this guy if it means retaining significant sums for the next two years, because he's just that much easier to move next year when there's only one more year left on his deal. So there's still value there. And ultimately, like, I always worry about the timing of when they clear cap space, because what are they going to do with it? Right. Yeah. And if, if you know they're going to spend it the right way on a defenseman, you feel better than if you're all of a sudden going to throw another 4.25 million at Mikheyev, right? Or that type of player. So that certainly always worries me in terms of not, yes, they want cap space, but when do they want it and at what cost? Right. So, um, yeah, so we'll see. I mean, obviously, they're, they're trying to do some work. They're trying to accommodate the player. They're trying to create some clarity and do all of that. But it doesn't make sense if the return is small for them to just to eat that much salary for the next two years. Also, one last thing. Hopefully they weaponize their LTIR cap space. That's Absolutely. the only other thing. Take us through the best way for them to do that at this stage. Yeah, I mean they've got a couple options. They can look to be a broker, obviously. In you know, a, in the case of a trade like Chicago, Chicago presumably moving Patrick Kane to New York, but and, and that you know maybe nets you a mid round pick. But uh, you know some of these other contracts, it's it's going to be um, it's going to be interest, interesting to look at if there are teams that want another sort of higher cap hit player to where are you are you able to take on you know a, a bad contract do a team for a favor that favor that way uh oh, a couple of weeks ago Jansen and I had uh, had a list of uh had a list of those sorts of guys in in an article we wrote at the athletic I will say it was interesting that um that Edmonton was able to just move Poliarvi for example recently to the Canes for, and they actually were able to bring in a prospect not a high high end one from the Canes but <clears throat> unless I'm mistaken, they didn't have to give up um, uh, a sweetener to do it. So maybe it's more difficult than we initially forecasted. I'm certainly surprised that uh, Pugliarvi went in that uh, in that sort of way. So maybe that route is more difficult. And and in, in that sort of case, you have to pivot and look to look at more of the broker sort of deals. But you also have to be... It's not easy, right? Because for as much as we're saying it's important to weaponize it, they've also got to make, make a calculation of how many sort of moves are we going to make with uh, with retentions? Now, I think with these broker trades, it's easier because you you're, you're presumably only only you know retaining that you know twenty five percent or whatever it is through the end of the season, so you get that retention slot back because you can only retain on three deals, and the Canucks already used used up one of those in in the Horvat one, and, the, and then you also wonder with a player like Besser or Garland, could you use your retention slots there? They're just going to have to be mindful of that, so it's maybe not as easy as um, as it looked two or three weeks ago. But you'd hope that the Canucks get creative with it because the um, the Wild have already done it twice, and it didn't even cost that much. This is the key, right? Because one of the big concerns has been would ownership be willing to actually give out the actual cash for it, right? You look at the O'Reilly deal, for example. When Minnesota retained twenty five percent, it cost them less than a hundred grand in actual cash because of the bonuses that were involved. So you just hope that the Canucks don't wait too long that they try and get involved because you don't want to end up in a scenario where you run out of op options and, and flexibilities because there, there is going to have to be some thought put into exactly how they go about doing it. All right, uh, let's uh, wrap there. This Friday, if you're looking for other podcast options, Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian host a live trade deadline recap show starting at 2.30 Eastern, uh, 1.30 or sorry, 11.30 for those of us here on the West Coast. Uh, that is on the Athletic Hockey Show's YouTube channel, also Facebook and Twitter. As for us, uh, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for $2 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com some great trade deadline discussion there uh Drancer has a good article on on what we've discussed earlier shedding riley stillman's cap hit also breaks down uh some of the other moves the canucks have made of late uh, who said no Drancer and harm get into evaluating your canuck trade proposals on jt miller and much more cam sharon has a good article on vasily potpolzin's game and how it's improved since his time in abbotsford also Drancer talks about the ekman larson trade possibly the riskiest in canuck history and there's also another article on just how these trades wind up getting built, created, assembled, and consummated. So lots of great content on The Athletic. And again, Friday, we will be on at some point after the trade deadline talking about what the Canucks did and didn't do. And then next week, Harm and I are back on on Monday. So thanks for listening, tuning in, logging on, all of it. We love the VIPs. We'll be back at the end of the week.